Lent is the season that we uh, kind of popularly associate with uh, giving something up. This has its origins in it being a season of fasting. Uh, the traditional church calendar had this notion of uh, feasts and fasts, and Lent was a, was a fast, a 40-day fast leading up to Easter. Or Good Friday. I'm not sure if it's 40 days to Good Friday or 40 days to Easter. Somebody, anybody know? Mm. It's, it's 46 days. Oh, Sunday, plot twist. Ah, so it's variable. Okay, till Good Friday. Okay, so you know, 40 days ish to something before that time, <laughs> and um, the so what was what was common during this uh, fast time was to. Uh, well, to fast, you would um, fast from food, uh, sometimes for a day, sometimes. Uh, generally, the notion is you would fast entirely from uh, meat during the time, except on Fridays. And entering into the season of fast, you got to have a big blowout beforehand. That's where you get Mardi Gras, Carnival. It's kind of like a big feast uh, before, uh, before things turn gloomy. So that's the notion there. Um, and so this notion, though, of giving things up has been kind of uh, popularized as kind of a thing. You, you give something up during Lent. Uh, learn more about yourself. It's a discipline. Maybe you're, uh, maybe it's a chance to give up something like coffee or chocolate or booze or what have you. Um, so today I'm uh, going to suggest that we might consider a discipline of giving up God for Lent. Atheism for Lent. Um, and uh, my wife was making fun of me as I prepared for this. She's like, oh, you're just doing one of those like controversial preacher things. And you're not going to deliver. So we'll see. <laughs> um, but uh, so this isn't my idea. Um, uh, this, is, this is an idea of a Christian philosopher named Merrill Westfall. Uh, he, he suggested this and uh, even, even wrote a book along these lines called Suspicion and Faith. And when I was, um, when I was writing my uh, bachelor's uh, thesis on um, faith and reason in conversation with postmodern philosophy, he was a guy I interacted with a lot. There's a contemporary Christian philosopher named uh, Peter Rollins who's kind of taken this up here on the course that you can uh, buy into called Atheism for Lent. He's kind of made it part of his brand. Um, and there's some, some pretty pretty good stuff in there. I haven't uh, taken it. Uh, but uh, if, you're, if you're curious to make this a discipline during Lent, uh, that would be something you could look into. And the notion here is that um, the God that we think is God is probably not God. And so we should give up believing in this God during, and that that Lent is a good time uh, to do this. And uh, atheism has a, has a rich uh, tradition within Christian history itself. In fact, the way that the uh, earliest Christians were known in the Roman Empire was as atheists. That is what they were described as by... Uh, the rulers and the powers that be in, in the context of the, the early church. They were called atheists because they refused to pay homage to the Roman gods, one of whom was Caesar. Their confession that Christ was Lord meant that Caesar was not. And in, in the Roman system, again, one of the things that we forget about in the ancient world is that our modern notions of any kind of separation between politics, economics, religion, there, there was no such thing. It all hung together as part of a complete tapestry. And so to fail to confess that Caesar was Lord uh, was to be an atheist, to not believe in the gods, and therefore to be dangerous subversives uh, who at times were persecuted and killed, thrown to the lions, burned at stakes, strung up on crosses, and so the early Christians, that was what they were described as, atheists, because they were subversives. And to believe in God was to be a part of this stable order, and they were disrupting that. 
But that's not what I'm here to talk about specifically, although you'll probably see some resonance with that, because the God that we worship today frequently has more in common with Caesar than with the God that the early Christians worshipped. And so, um, so one of the one of the prompting thoughts for atheism is always the fact that bad things always keep happening in the world, and it feels like, in some senses, they are happening more, and this is always a thing that should challenge our faith, and. So the contemporary example that hits very close to home is the recent uh, not guilty verdict in the trial of the murder of Tina Fontaine um, that has caused just an outpouring of grief and sorrow in our community. And, but not only this, what we see happening all over the news we see We see yet another shooting at a school in the United States to our south. And, you know, 17 children and teachers murdered all too easily. We see um, in the broader world, we see continued devastation in the Middle East, in Syria. We see the persecution of the Rohingya Muslims in in, uh, Myanmar, basically a genocide occurring. These things keep happening. And we we see, in the case, again, very recently in Canada, we see, uh, we see Colton Bushi murdered in cold blood and Gerald Stanley pronounced not guilty. And it's just a miscarriage of justice. And so, when we are confronted with these evils, we are confronted with the question of where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? Because it seems like if there is a God, that these things should not be happening, that these injustices should not be happening seemingly all the more, all the more often, all the more intensely, we see, we see the gun lobby and the NRA getting away with continuing to flood the entire country with guns that have no place being on the streets and in the hands of disturbed 19-year-old young men. We see, we see a fantastical story in the case of Gerald Stanley basically an act of God firing his gun, not himself, and that it's bought, that he gets away with it. So where is God in all of this, is the question. Because, and this is, this is one of the classical arguments for atheism, it's called the theodicy, it's the problem of evil. It's the fact that you can There are three statements that don't seem to hang together. There is the statement that God is all-powerful. There is the statement that God is all-good or all-loving. And there is the statement that these kinds of evil things keep happening in the world. And how can all three of these things be true at the same time if God is all-powerful and all-loving? And so, in this season of Lent... I invite us to think that maybe this argument is right, that maybe these three things cannot hang together. And normally the posture of Christianity has been to come out guns blazing with arguments and explanations for how this all works, for how these things can all be true. And they tend towards a lot of stuff that is very unpalatable. Now, none of these say that there is no God, but they say that maybe the God that we have is a sadist, an evil God, a God who is not good, 
a God who is in control, a God who is sovereign, and a God who is just perfectly happy to allow and maybe even to will these kinds of horrific things to keep happening. This is the argument you hear, uh, particularly from a lot of flavors of Calvinists in, in today. Uh, a gentleman fairly close to us geographically, John Piper, is very fond of saying these kinds of things, that God is the cause of these horrors, and that we should praise him for it. And this, to me, is revolting. This is not a God worth believing in. I am an atheist to that God. And that maybe God is a, maybe God is not all-powerful, so God's just ineffective. God's just a wimp. He'd like to prevent evil, but can't. He's loving, but he's kind of a pushover. He's kind of weak. So maybe that's possible. Or maybe it's possible that evil's just an illusion, that this is all just kind of fine. We're all just getting a little bit too worked up over this stuff. This is okay. Tina Fontaine is okay. School shootings are okay. No big deal. That this somehow is all working together for the good. Right? God makes all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. God has a plan. He's going to make it all work out right in the end. Sweet by and by. So evil's just... You know, fine. It'll all work out. And so these are the kind of comforters that we're left with, like the circle around Job saying, it must be your fault. You're making too big a deal out of all this. You shouldn't blame God for all this. But for those of us... <laughs> who cannot accept these answers, and I am one of them, we are filled with anguish at the Tina Fontaines of the world. We are filled with anguish that a 15-year-old young woman was failed time and time and time again by her, by her the support networks that should have protected her, by the police, by child and family services, by her community, maybe by her family. And I don't want to actually single out and blame any one of these people, but she was systematically failed time and time and time again. She was invisible. Nobody saw her as a person worth anything until she was pulled out of the Red River, wrapped in a duvet, sunk down with rocks, she was not anything worth paying attention to until she was dead. Because everyone treated her like she was not alive while she was alive. It's all part of the thing. She was, in terms of her dignity, murdered nearly every day of her life. And so we ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Why does this keep happening if God could prevent this why does doesn't he if God cares why doesn't he stop this and so the atheist answer is because there is no God that is the answer that we should face that we should accept or at least that there is no God according to these categories. Maybe the God is just a monster. And, you know, right here, I, like, want to walk you through the, to the end of this. I want to make it okay for you. You want me to make it okay for you. And the whole point of what I'm talking about today is that I don't want to make this okay for us because it's not okay. That's the entire point here. Well, I have lots of things I'm going to say still. But this moment is the important moment. The moment where we want to push this away. Where we want to stop feeling this way. So I'm going to take an awkwardly long sip of my water and you can sit with this.
And so the great uh, atheist thinkers are not the thinkers who try to argue whether or not God exists. Uh, they'll, they'll tend to say that God is just irrational, and that's, that is very much C-grade atheism. It's very not interesting to me. The good, the great atheists are the, are, are the thinkers who, who don't consider atheism something to argue about. They, they would roll their eyes at the uh, Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitchens and Sam Harris's of the world who are lightweights compared to the masters of suspicion, like Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. You could probably lump us, Lava Zizek, as a, as a more contemporary example of atheists working in this tradition. Atheists who know theology better than most theologians. And so today I'll particularly talk about uh, Marx and uh, Freud, because they have something to offer us in our, in our journey into atheism. Karl Marx, who in our kind of context, living in particularly close to the US border, is uh, it's a bit of a pariah, is a bit of a demonic figure, the father of communism, evil, godless communism. You know, we must fight. Communists, we must fight Marxism because it's godless. I was just listening to some stuff about uh, Billy Graham, and that was a big part of his appeal. He was fighting godless communism with the godly Western democratic values. This was a this was a big shtick of his. So, really, we have Karl Marx to thank for Billy Graham, and. Um, because it's always easier to unite people when you have an enemy. It's much easier to point fingers, to uh, unite, to make an us. But uh, Marx had some very good things to say. And um, one of the, at the heart of his atheist critique, because for, 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 for an atheist like Karl Marx, atheism is not something to be argued for. Atheism is something to be assumed. And when you just assume atheism, atheism is just true. We don't need to bother wasting our time arguing for it. Um, it's just true. Well, then you have to explain, well, why do all of these people continue believing in God? Why is there religion everywhere? And so, in Karl Marx's case, his, his analysis has to do with uh, an economic analysis of the world you have, you have owners, you have capitalists, you have the people who own the means of production, you have, in contemporary recent terms, you have the 1%, the people who are in control of any, everything. And then you have the 99%, the, the, the oppressed, the worker, the, the, the lower class, the people who are trod underfoot. And so his question is why do we allow this? Why do we continue to allow ourselves to be oppressed? We are the many, they are the few. Why do we allow them to continue to control us? And his answer is religion. Uh, you may have heard the phrase, religion is the opiate of the masses. That's Karl Marx. And his explanation is, because the oppressed, the worker, because they are trod underfoot, because their existence is gray and gloomy, and, and, and dire, they are, they, are, they are suffering in their, in their material lived existence. Religion comes and serves as a painkiller, as a consolation, as something that makes them feel just not quite bad enough to revolt and overthrow their oppressors. And so for Karl Marx, religion is the thing that keeps us it, that maintains the unjust structure of the world. It makes injustice just bearable enough to not do anything about it. And not only this, but religion is not just the opiate of the 99%, religion is also the opiate of the 1%. 
that you will see, and you can see this particularly looking to our neighbors to the south, the richest people tending towards being also some of the most pious people, speaking as though God is on their side, justifying their riches. God meant me to have this, these riches. I worked for this. Why don't you? God has rewarded my hard work. And it's a way to absolve them of responsibility. It's a way to say that, no, no, I am not oppressing them. It's just God who's doing it. I'm just walking in his ways, walking in his will. It's not me who's responsible for all this. Why don't you work harder? And so that is the way that Karl Marx says that this functions. It functions to make us feel just slightly better in our oppression, whether we're on the receiving end of it or on the giving end of it. So Marx has a lot more to say than that, but I'll, but I'll keep it to the highlights there. Now, Sigmund Freud, on the other hand, um, his, his take on the whole thing, he, he's famous as the father of psychoanalysis, so again, he's not asking whether or not God exists. He assumes it doesn't. And he's looking, what about our psychology? What about the way that we think and desire and fear? What is it about us that makes us believe in a God who isn't even there? And so his, his thing has a lot to do with, um, with conflicted relationships, particularly with our mother and our father. Um, his idea is essentially that um, as, as we grow older, we are confronted with uh, the anxiety of existence, the um, uncertainty of the world, and we begin to see that our parents, who in our youth were these figures who it seemed knew everything, who could take care of everything, they were, they were kind of this prototype of a god who is omniscient, uh, um, well, maybe not omnipresent, but omniscient and omni omnip omnipotent, omnipotent. Anyway, <laughs> all-powerful and uh, all-knowing, it seems like. And as we grow older, we begin to see that that's entirely not the case, that our parents are flawed, that they are not uh, kind of buffer, they are not a protector against the uncertainty and the anxiety of the world. And, and I mean, I feel this as a, as a fairly recent father with a three-year-old. It's like, oh, kid, you have no idea how little I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, it's going to be a fascinating experience for you to figure this out. I can't wait. Um, and so Freud says, essentially, once we are confronted with the fact that our parents cannot protect us, from this, you know, unstable, anxious world that surrounds us. Once we see that they can't make things okay, we then project outwards and say, well, there must be that thing that used to keep me safe. There must be this God, this kind of sky daddy who's going to make things okay so that I don't have to confront my anxiety in all of its depths. So that I can say, no, 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 God's going to make it all right. God's, gonna, God's taking care of it all, just like Daddy used to, just like I thought Daddy would. So I've got a sky daddy now who's going to make everything all right. And, you know, there's, there's power in that. And that is a thing that we do quite frequently with God, I think. So that's what Freud says. Um, basically, we want God to be the parent that um, our parents actually could never be. Yeah. That there reminds me, I was watching a mm -hmm. Ken Burns documentary mm -hmm. on Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Really great documentary. I've heard good things. To mm -hmm. watch it. But... Uh, they were interviewing these, these old vets who were in the Vietnam War, young men, obviously, when they were entering the war. And a lot of them, the moment they kind of entered the battlefield, mm -hmm. and bullets were flying, mm -hmm. 
non-believers would become believers, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Like, God, help yeah. save me, yeah. right? Yeah. Protect me. Yeah. And many of those prayers, of course, were not answered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a... Some people like to say there are no atheists in foxholes as a description of that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, lots of those prayers weren't answered, and lots of those people are dead who prayed those prayers. So what then do we say? But it's, yeah. Um, and so, and so these, these uh, to, to use fancy philosophical language, this, this is called the hermeneutics of suspicion, that behind your belief, I'm suspicious, that there's more going on here, that there's kind of a bit of self-deception going on, that the reason that we want or believe something isn't what we think it is, isn't the lie we tell ourselves, we dress it up, we make it nicer than it is. And so this is about motives, and this is a very powerful thing for us to dive into uh, during Lent, during um, this time where we are maybe going through a period of self-examination. Now, suspicion is a very easy thing to turn on other people. Oh, I see what you're doing. Oh, you're just... Ah, you're just... Right, it's very easy to turn outwards. And that is, that is a thing that we like to do. Um, and it's very easy to do. It's very easy to see bad motives, bad faith in other people. It's much harder to turn this inwards, to turn this on ourselves, within ourselves individually, within our communities, that we are not necessarily these wonderful good people that we want to be much of the time, any of the time. And so Marx and Freud are not our enemies, but they are our friends insofar as they help us to say that the God that we believe in is probably a God we wish was there rather than a God who might actually be. And so with that as background, we can begin to start getting back to this question of why does this keep happening and we can see that when we're asking this question, why does this keep happening? Why does Tina Fontaine keep happening? We see that when any of our explanations involve God, they tend to be explanations that make us not have to do anything, that make us not involved, that let us put up some distance, let us not actually feel the depths of that pain. No, no. God, God's going to work it out. It'll, well, you know, it's just this evil age. It'll be fine in the next age. And so we begin to see that these are probably, in most cases, if not in all cases, these kinds of explanations are defense mechanisms against the fear and the anxiety and the pain to use, they're, they're the opiate that keeps us just numb enough so that we don't feel this burning need to do something about it. And where is God in all of this is always the question. And the answer that we are entering into during the season of Lent is that where is God in all of this? Well, this is the question that was being asked, of course, in the life and time of Jesus in an oppressed people being taxed 90%, seeing their children starve, seeing any rebellion being squashed with max executions. Where is God in all of this, they said. Where is God? When will he deliver us from our enemies? When will he destroy the Romans? When will the Messiah come and wipe them out? When will he come and free us? from our slavery, just like, the, just like God came once and freed us from the Egyptians, will he not come and free us from the Romans? Will he not come and free us from residential schools? Will he not come and free us from child and family services? Where is God in all of this? And the Christian answer is that 
is that the Messiah came and the Messiah died and the Messiah failed. God did not come from the outside as some kind of hero, deliverer, just in the nick of time. God came in the midst of our suffering. God is in this with us, not outside of this. God entered into solidarity with the suffering and the evil of the world and let us nail him onto an imperial torture device because he was held to be a disruptor and a heretic and an atheist. And on the cross, he became the first Christian atheist. It was God forsaken of God. He cried out on the cross, Lama lama Eloi sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the first Christian atheist. He is God forsaken of God, entering into solidarity with all of our suffering. God saying, no, I am not insensitive to your suffering. In fact, I will enter into solidarity with all of your suffering. I will not deny it. I will not pretend it is not there. And I will let you do all of it to me, to the point where I too feel abandoned of God, just like you all do. And again, We want to skip to the end. We want to go immediately to Easter and resurrection and new life. But let us linger here in the cross, in God forsaken of God, in God identifying in one act with every victim everywhere. On that cross, God was right there. God was Tina Fontaine. God was Colton Bushi. God was every child mowed down in Florida in that school. God is continually being in this thing with us where we are abandoned of the God who is going to protect us from ourselves. And so the cross is the advent of Christian atheism, of ceasing to pretend that we can not take responsibility for our place in this world, that God's going to figure it out, that God's going to make things better. God came into the world and let us do his far worst to him. <coughs> And the, the place that we live in most of the time, much of the time, is the place that in, in the three days of, of, you know, of this season, of the Lenten season, where we know Good Friday and we know Easter Sunday, but the place we live is Holy Saturday, the place before we know things are going to work out okay, the place where it's up to us now. The place where there is no all-powerful God who's going to come save us from the outside, who's going to intervene. The place where the power of God is the power to love and the power to enter into this whole thing with us and the power to let us imitate him in this. The power for us to stand and kneel and pray everywhere with victims, everywhere with Tina Fontaine's, everywhere with Colton Bushies, to use recent examples. Everywhere where there is injustice is where we should be because that is exactly where Jesus went to, both in his life and in his death. It's all a part of the same. He went always to all of the margins because he went to the abandoned people. And so if we are going to purify ourselves in the Lenten season, we need to stop believing in the God who is going to go anywhere without us. 
that if we ask ourselves, where is God, the real question is, where are we? Because that is where God is. And so, wherever belief in God is a thing that is just a consolation, that lets us feel better about ourselves, that lets us sink into inaction, to sink into indifference. This is a season to stop believing in that God. That God is dead. That God is forever on a cross. And the God who we hope and believe and confess rises from that is something entirely different from the God who's going to do anything except in and through us. So, any questions? Yes? Question, like, in terms of what atheism means, because I know to me what we, as you would have said too, that um, what atheism means is it's not accepting and rejecting mm-hmm. that both Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Roman times where we would have considered ourselves atheists. Mm-hmm. In this case for today, mm-hmm. if an atheist, in our modern terms, mm-hmm. someone who rejects to believe that Jesus is Lord, how would they respond to your message? I don't know. That you'd have to ask them. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Like I'd say in as many ways as there are different people. Some people wouldn't like it. Some people might. I don't, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean... I have a, a question and mm-hmm. comment. Mm-hmm. So my, my first question is... Going back to the, the genesis of, of the word atheism, mm-hmm. you had mentioned that Romans who um, didn't believe in Caesar as being a god, mm-hmm. um, they were considered to be atheists. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So atheism is um, the you don't have any belief in a god. There's mm-hmm. there's no god, right? Yeah. No God or gods, depending on us. So, what what I don't understand about that is Roman culture at the time had many gods, right? Yeah. Polytheism. Yeah. So, why, like, because you didn't believe in that God, why does that necessarily equate with you not believing in any gods, such as atheists? Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, like, firstly, it's just, like, a different context, right? Um, so, in, in that particular context, where Christians were accused of being atheists, it's because they didn't believe in Caesar as divine, and they rejected the whole system of these other, like, the polytheism, the, the pantheon of Roman gods that supported the current system that said that this whole thing is divinely ordained, the way that Rome works and Caesar on his throne, that this whole thing all hangs together, right? And so the Christians rejected those as false gods, uh, including Caesar, but all, but the whole the whole system, the whole thing, and that made them atheists because they were atheists towards the gods and and the whole system that uh, made the thing happen. Now, uh, a modern atheist who rejects. Uh, there being any gods, including the Christian God, and like any gods whatsoever, like that's a different kind of atheism, okay. certainly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's totally, it's totally, yeah, it's evolved over time. But the early Christians were called atheists because they were subversives. Um, Jesus himself, was, in a certain sense, even in the mock trial prior to his execution, was called a certain kind of, well, a blasphemer in his case. And so people who People who, uh, like it's all a part of the same kind of thing, people who stand against the powers and the current order are always somehow unholy where that order is held up by a certain kind of like, like gods and divinity justifying the whole thing.
So, and so like a modern, modern atheism is, of course, an evolution. Things have changed in 2,000 years. Yeah, I just wasn't yeah. familiar okay. with the yeah. genesis of that. Yeah, like some of the, like uh, Socrates was accused of being an atheist as well, uh, even before Jesus. So like it has a tradition of subversives everywhere okay. being accused of such things. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And my, my comment is... Um, what, what I see is uh, there are a lot of fundamentalists, mm-hmm. uh, and this is kind of relating to why does God allow evil things to happen, mm-hmm. uh, fundamentalists expect God to perform miracles, so mm-hmm. he has the ability to intervene, to interject, and mm-hmm. to uh, sure, these evil things don't happen, mm-hmm. and and I guess it's it's well, it's the Bible itself that kind of cultivates that mm-hmm. belief that God has the ability to perform these miracles. Mm-hmm. But from what I've read of the New Testament and, and the teachings of Jesus, is that he really communicated that what you are looking for is not external, but rather internal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yep. That the power is, it, it, it is within you. You have autonomy here, mm-hmm. right? And I like that message because I think even if you fast forward today, a lot of social issues, people expect government to right. intervene mm-hmm. and to, you know, to, to save the day, for, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. Yep. I work on climate change and people yep. just point fingers at government. So it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Yeah. Well, one of the most powerful uh, 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 lines I've ever heard somebody say is Barack Obama. I don't know if he is necessary. To to I don't know if this is his own, but. Barack Obama said on TV. He said, We are the change we seek. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very Jesus thing to say, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah. It's just, um, yeah. Um, you know, the, I think it's, I don't know how exactly directly, but to Gandhi be the change you want yeah. to see in the world. Right? Okay, yeah. It's yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, uh, another way, another way this is said uh, is that, that I particularly appreciate is. We are the ones we've been waiting for, right? It's not on somebody else. Um, it's on us. It's not on some other entity. Because, again, the, the hermeneutics of suspicion is particularly good at showing us all of the ways that we try not to take responsibility. Um, but we can. And if enough of us do, change can actually happen. Yeah, because creating that change is, uh, sorry to yeah. belabor this, but creating that change ourselves is, is difficult. It takes a lot of effort and yeah, it does. diligence. And, yeah. Yeah, it's easier just to mm-hmm. allow somebody or yeah. ask somebody else to do it for you, right? Yeah. And if the way that things are is the way that God made them, we might actually be like sinful to try and change them. <laughs> is a line of thinking that's out there, and I think it's bunk, but that's that's a line of thinking that's out there that I think we need to get rid of as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So that, that is the kind of God that I will remain an atheist towards well beyond Lent. Yeah. Any other questions? Sorry, I don't know if you want to ask me. I didn't read the much of the thing. I've heard, I think more than just me, have heard, uh, you know, God is with you. Not necessarily outside, God is with you in these mm-hmm. circumstances. And mm-hmm. I think that saying is both comforting, but that can be incredibly traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because right. where was he when yeah. the trauma happened? Potentially absent. Right. 
And so, because mm-hmm. I think there's a Feels connection like that lasts for a very long time after that. There's no, yeah. that, that phrase is trying to create connection, mm-hmm. really, otherwise there's not. Yeah. And so, what would be your response, even in that? Because yeah. I think we're talking about, you know, change, like mm-hmm. looking internally, and that requires mm-hmm. us to actually reveal ourselves, reveal mm-hmm. what this actually yeah. is. And so, in, 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 you know, cases of grief and of suffering, the God who should be with these people should be found in us, just being with these people. Not to just say something trite, like, God is with you. No, I'm with you. I'm here. Um, we are with you is even better than I am with you. Um, and just, there's... There's a thing that happens in grief and in trauma where the reason we say things like, oh, God is with you so that I can stay a little bit distant from this. I can put up a barrier. God can take care of this so that I don't have to feel this way because it's a, it's a defense mechanism. It's a way to not fully enter into the situation ourselves. It's a way to, again... It's a way to try and make things okay, and we want to so desperately in in situations of grief and of loss and of trauma. We want to make it okay when it isn't okay. And so just to be there, um, this is one of the great things we can learn from, uh, from the Jewish tradition is something called sitting Shiva. And it's a, it's a tradition where when, when a family member dies, the community gathers around the family for, for days and they just sit there in silence with them. We're here and we're not trying to explain anything. We're not. Um, and so it, it takes a period of days before, before anyone is allowed to speak because it's too easy in our speech to immediately try to push past the pain, to pretend it's not there. And we do it for our own sake because we don't like feeling the pain of the person in suffering. And we start to mirror it and feel it ourselves and we hate it and we want to make it go away. And so now the person who won't let go of their suffering is a problem and that's really about us. Right? Um, and so all of these things we do to like shortcut to try and make it go away are like all too common, all too typical. Um, and, and just, you know, just make it worse, right? Um, you know, I was, like, just witnessing, for instance, my, in my family, uh, my wife's younger sister, she died, age 25, like, five years ago, six years ago, six years ago, almost right around this time. And nobody knows why. She just got sick and she died. Seemed like the flu, and then she was gone. And so what you witnessed is that the family, my my in-laws, they hated being around Christians because they wanted to just say all the bullshit, trite, garbage. The non-Christians were much better at grief that were around them. They didn't try to turn it into a theology and into a sermon all the time. It's just like they were willing to say, wow, what? Ah. Instead of, God will work it out. God has a plan. And, yeah, it was, and so this, this desire to explain all of this, when all we can do is to say, why does God allow all of this? Oh, I don't know. But it looks like he's in it with us. The cross says he's in it with us. I don't know why he lets it happen, but he let it happen to himself too. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. This is not 
the way I would do things <laughs> at all. But yeah, so it's it, it it's us that is trying to make it go away, and then we do more harm. It's a good question. So this is why we come time and again to the table of the Eucharist, of Christ's offering of himself to us to say that I'm in this with you. I'm in this with you. You at your worst did this to me and I'm still in this with you. I forgive you. This is what what my love looks like. This is what the only power of God is the power of love and of self-giving and of self-sacrifice. The power of God is symbolized in this table. This is the only power of God that we actually have if we are going to follow in this way. It's not the most comforting thing. That's why we search for all these other explanations to make it better, to make it okay, to make it so that we do not have to take up our crosses and follow. Because that's uncomfortable. That's unpleasant. That's difficult. To sit with the suffering. To not be able to fix it. But to accept it. And so that is why we come back to the table time and again, because this is the revelation of the mystery of the power of God shown in love, that God is not out there somewhere. God is in here with us. God is in this thing with us. And that God is also forsaken of the God who is going to come save us from ourselves.